0: Today we continue this series through Nehemiah, and I don't know that if you are in the same situation I am, that, that it seems like every week when we get to this next chapter, one, there's this continual idea of Nehemiah listing the people that are involved, and, and listing the people, and while that's one, one part that's, that's discouraging, because then you have to try to decipher through all the names. But what, what's interesting and what, what God's been teaching me as we've been looking into this is that, that it's important that he knows us, that, that God knows who we are. And it, so much so that he inspired Nehemiah to, to write down the people that were involved in this, that, that this wasn't just some random thing. It's not one person's account. He lists those people. And that, that, that's encouraging to me. It, it gives me confidence and assurance that that what we're doing here through watershed while it might seem insignificant within the world spectrum of the church is actually known by God that he has ordained us at this time in redemptive history to be doing this work just as he wrote down these people in Nehemiah just as we know who was involved in this task that, that we too are known by Him personally. And what that does then is that changes then how we worship. That changes then what our lives look like. And that's what we see today as we come into Nehemiah chapter 9. If you have your Bible, you can go ahead and turn there. We'll be in Nehemiah chapter 9 today. And, and what we're talking about here is a, a life of true worship. And, and I say it that way because if we're, if we're honest with ourselves, we all worship something. We all, we, are, we all worship something. We all place something above. And, and yesterday, it was funny. I was finishing up stuff right as the, the Spurs were about to start game seven. And I, so I'm like sitting here about to talk about true worship, not having to watch the most important game of the season for the team that I root for. And it was like this, this lesson of, yeah, let's, let's check and see if you're truly doing what you're supposed to do. And so, and it was hard, wasn't it? It's hard when something like that is, and you've placed something up that's important, whether it really is or not, you've, you've put that up there. It's hard when, when God pulls you away from that and says, now look at me. This is, let, your, let your eyes gaze on me. And I, I felt like that's what he was pressing into me yesterday, but, but this idea that we all worship something. We all worship Something. In James 1.14 it says, But each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desires. That we're we're lured and enticed by our own desires. When we worship those things of our own desires, that's when we're tempted because it's drawing our gaze away from Christ and placing them on our own desires. In, In Jeremiah 17 it says, that the heart is deceitful above all things. And what we see there with that is that, that when we look at James, talking about our, we're enticed, we're tempted, when we're drawn away by our desires, and we, we look at Jeremiah at the same time with that, that the heart is deceitful above all things, we realize that it's a matter of our heart that determines if we live a life of true worship. It's where our heart's affections are, where our heart's desires are, determines whether or not we're worshiping truly or correctly, or if we have False worships, if we have idols that have gone above who God is, because we all worship something. And and kind of in that same same theme, you've probably heard me quote this before, but John Calvin said that the human heart is a factory of idols, that every one of us from our mother's womb is an expert in inventing idols. And so what he's saying there is that it's a heart thing, that each of us from our mother's womb, so from the, the smallest baby to the oldest person, what our heart does is an expert at inventing idols. Placing objects of worth it, worship that aren't the true objects of worship. Or as Paul says in Romans, worshiping creation rather than the creator. And, and so we see today as we look at this passage in Nehemiah that we're going to see that, that there is a way to have a life of true worship. That there is a way to do that. And we see what happens here in this chapter and it points us to that. So if you will... Follow along. We're, we're, we're going to change it up a little bit. We're only going to read the first three verses. We've been reading 10 or 12 through this whole series because they're, they're kind of long. But we're, we're reading the first three verses because it really sets up this idea of worship. And then we'll, we'll unpack the rest of the chapter as we go. And then we'll kind of finish back at the beginning. I know we're going two weeks in a row we've been out of chronological order. So forgive me on that. But we'll finish where we start. And it will all make sense by the end. So in Nehemiah chapter 9. In verse 1, it says, Now on this, the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled, with fasting and in their sackcloth, with earth and with earth on their heads. A little, a real, a little context. They were in this feast, and one, one part of what's happening here is they would build tents, like on their roofs. Uh, on their roof. And then they would, that, that would be part of what's happening. So when it says earth on their head, it's because that's kind of what's been happening. So it's been this feast and this time of, fasting, and celebration within that. And so with earth on their head, in verse 2 it says, And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. In verse 3 it says, They stood up in their place and read from the book of law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day and for another quarter of it they made confession and worshipped the Lord their God. If you will pray with me and we'll ask the Spirit to guide us through this today. Father God, we we acknowledge that this is your truth. God, that this is your unedited truth. God, that you've inspired people to give us your truth and that it's useful for us to learn from, that, that we can see how to live a life of true worship because you've given us your truth. God, and we just I just acknowledge today that I am incapable of proclaiming your truth without your spirit, God. And I just pray that, that as we read your words, that one thing would happen, and that would be glory would be given to you. And we just pray that your spirit would pierce our hearts with your truth so that our lives would be changed. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So what we see here, and when we have this idea of true worship, we've kind of been experiencing this cycle. If you if you go back a couple chapters, really starting verse in, in chapters six and nine, the last three weeks of this series, we we've been through chapter six and now in chapter nine. And what we see there is this cycle. In in the end of chapter six and the beginning of seven, we see that there's still conflict. That they were. That's when the the people that were going against Nehemiah were coming in, they were saying, we're gonna, we're gonna send letters to the king, if you'll remember, and they were just saying all these deceitful lying things. There was people from within trying to get Nehemiah to run and, and hide instead of standing firm. And we said that what happens there is that Nehemiah was a person of faith. That his faith defined who he was as a leader, who he was as a man of God. And that we talked about his secret ingredient, that was prayer. That he always went back to prayer. And in fact, the rest of chapter 9, most of chapter 9 is a prayer. It's a, it's a written prayer remembering what God's done. And so what we see then is if you go in chapter 6 and 7, we see that there's this living by faith. But in chapter 8, what happened? It was, it was all about the Word of God. They stood up for five or six hours just listening to the Word of God. And so what we see there is that when we look at the Word of God, we see that it that Shows us who God is, reveals who God is, and as a result, it reveals who we are. So then uh, uh, that directs us back to being people of faith because we realize that we can't do it on our own. And so it drives us to live a life of faith like as Nehemiah did in 6 and 7. And now when we get to chapter 9, we see what worship is. We see the outward expression of those inward things that happen. We proclaim the word. We read the word like they did in chapter 8. They exalted it. They stood in its presence. And that directed them to live a life of faith because they've seen who God is. They've seen that he has been faithful and that he's been patient with them. And so we see this whole circle. This, this, that's a continual cycle of what our life should look like. It should be driven by going to the word, not necessarily just for circumstances, but because that's where we find truth. When we open our word, it should be this, this opening of this amazing thing. Our hearts should be drawn to it. Not just to seek information, but to understand who God is. And to see Him there. And when we see that, we realize that that we are people of faith because we only have faith. That if we're going to have hope, it's in Christ alone. And that drives us to be people of faith, relying on Him for everything. Just like the song we just sung. that, that, That when we get into the Word and we see that, we realize that Jesus is better. And so we can, through faith, live a life, and then that leads us to worship because it directs us then, if we're people of faith and Jesus is better, that's, that's proclamation, that's worship. And so we see this life cycle of the Christian happening right here in these, these four chapters, and today we're going to focus in on worship, and, and like I have said, what is the true worship, or how do we worship correctly? If we're going to truly worship, because we all worship something, how do we worship correctly or live a life of true worship? And we see first, when we look at this chapter that, that we worship correctly when we see God's power. If you will, look at verse 7. Look at verse 7. What we see in, in from 7 to 14, we're going to read part of this, and we're going to look, but what happens is we see God's power. In verse 7 it says, You are the Lord, the God, who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. You, made, you found his heart faithful before you, and you made him with him a covenant. To his offspring. We see there's, that that's God's power on display. God's power's on display because he chose Abram, not because anything that he had done. He chose Abram, and he, he brings him out. He gives him a new name. He's a new creation, if you will. And then he calls him out, and he sets up a covenant with him. and says, no, you're going to be the father of many. Your descendants will be like the stars. And so what we see that then is if you go outside at night and if you live out of the city enough when you see the stars, that's that's a way where you can visualize God's covenant with Abraham because that's what we are. We're represented of that. And so we see God's power in, in seeing this. And then verse nine it says, And you saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt and heard their cry at the Red Sea. And what? He performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants and all the people of his land. For you knew that they acted arrogantly against our fathers. And what? And you made a name for yourself as it is to this day. There's something we need to see there, that God's power, when we're living a life of true worship, and we do that because we see God's power, it's because he's creating a name for himself. He's not creating a name for us. We're not elevating ourselves above that. It's just like this right here. This should be our prayer that we would make God known. He made a name for himself. How? And you divided the seed. What better way to see God's power than to see a body of water separated? A body of water separated and they walk through on dry land. It's God's power, and God's power leads us to worship Him because we see who He is in that. In verse 12 By a pillar of cloud you led them in the day, and by a pillar of fire in the night to light for them the way in which they should go. So we see there, again, God's power going before his people. There's a perfect example of what we should do in our lives now. We don't have a a cloud by day and a fire by night, but we have the gospel that tells us that Christ should be on the horizon of our lives, and we should point our lives in that direction. So we see that, that God's power on display is leading us to true worship because he's the object then of worship, because he's the one that has power over nature. Verse 13 says, you came down on Mount Mount Sinai and you spoke with them from heaven and gave them the right rules and the true laws and good statutes and commandments and you made known to them your holy Sabbath and commanded them the commandments. He gives them the law. He sets up, he has power over social order. He says this is how you're supposed to live and that's supposed to drive us to worship. We see further that, that what it did is pointed out our sin. And so in God's power, setting up the law, giving us this social order and how we should live our lives is actually pointing Him, pointing us to true worship, pointing them to true worship because it revealed who they were, incapable of saving themselves. And so it pointed them to true worship, because here's God. It's His power on display. We see further that that He what he gave them bread from heaven for their hunger and and brought water from them out of the rock for their thirst. He gives them lands, and we see that this power of God then puts him as the object of worship. Because that's what we do, right? That's what we do in our lives, is we see people that, quote, have power or authority, and we automatically elevate them, don't we? If, if someone is important, we elevate them. If they have power in our lives, or they have, they're, they're automatically up higher. Why? Because it's the power on display. It's their authority on display. And so what we need to see is that we do that in our lives all the time, but we fail to do that with God because we don't go back to seeing his power. And that's what the start of this prayer is. They're they're saying, look at what you've done. Your power was on display. And that's a recipe for true worship because when we see who God is, when we see the power that he acts by and what he's done in his people, we realize that he does the same thing in our lives. That it's his power that elevates him. And so when we look at that, when we read these words, and we read other passages in Scripture, we see the things that God has done. We can't help but worship. We can't help but worship. And so many times we need to be reminded of that. That's what happens to Job. We always like to think of Job as this amazing story of suffering. But what I, uh, what I really like about that is when God finally speaks after 36 chapters and just says, where are you? when the goat gives birth. Who holds back the storehouses of hell? That's of of hell and snow. What we see there is God saying, here's who I am, the all-powerful creator of the universe. Who are you? And when we see that, when we see God for who he is, that powerful, powerful God, we fall in worship. That's always the response in scripture when an angel appears, right? They fall in worship, and the angels always say, no, it's not me. We, we, we see someone with power and authority and we automatically worship. And so we have to make ourselves go to Scripture, have to make ourselves remember who He is and how He is powerful, because that's then going to lead us to a life of true worship. But not only that leads us to a life of true worship, it's when we see God's power, we live a life of true worship, where we can correctly worship. Our hearts are pointed toward Him, but it's also when we realize His faithfulness, or His patience. Look at verse 17. Chapter 9, verse 17. We'll skip down a little bit. And then verse 17, it says what? They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them. So there we go. That's what happens. First part of that is is a description of our lives. They refused to obey. They weren't mindful of the wonders. They didn't acknowledge his power. The parting of the Red Sea didn't jar their minds hard enough to where they continued to follow him but what? They stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery. Then here's the last part that you need to focus on here. That you are a God ready to forgive. That's something that we all should underline and memorize. That, that they refuse to obey. We refuse to obey. We're not mindful of the wonders, the things that God has done. We, we stiffen our necks. We go back to putting ourselves back into slavery by wanting the things of the world. But what? But he's a God ready to forgive and then we see a description of his character. This, that he's not this abstract thing. We, we can see who he is. And what, what do we see? That he's gracious and merciful. He's slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. And he didn't forsake them. Just as he didn't forsake them, he doesn't forsake us. When we turn away, he's a good father that, that is there for us. Why? Because he's gracious and he's merciful. He's ready to forgive. He's slow to anger. That doesn't mean he's not angry at sin. It means that he has patience with us when we're living our lives away from him, that he's a good father, that he allows his children to live their lives. He doesn't control us like robots. We live our lives with what? He's ready to forgive. And so when we experience that, when we realize his faithfulness, it leads us to true worship. It leads us to true worship. Think of it. If you're a parent and your kid's are doing everything wrong, and it's insanely frustrating. That's, probably, that's, that's where I lose it the most. I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. Surely I didn't act that way, right? I'm like, no, I wasn't that kid. In reality, I probably was, or probably worse. But what happens, though, is I see them doing the things that we tell them not to. We had yesterday. The kids, they always go play outside, and we looked out the door, and they're all playing in the back of the truck. And I, don't, I think it's every day we say, don't play in the back of the truck because I don't clean the back of the truck, so who knows what's in the back of the truck. They don't need to be playing there. And, and yesterday, I, didn't, I, didn't, I don't think I handled that well because it just got frustrating. It was like every day, I don't have to tell you the same thing every day. But then something in my mind made me realize that this is exactly how God treats me, is that I do the same thing that he tells me not to do every day, but what does he do? He loves me and he's ready to forgive me. He's graceful and he's merciful. And so just as your kids, just as Keaton still loves me and comes back to me, even when I lose it, unlike God, it's still the same thing, that we should go back to him. Why? Because he's ready to forgive. Because he's a good father that's gracious and merciful. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in steadfast love. Steadfast love, this love that doesn't move, he's abounding in it. There's there's more there than you can have or that you need. And when you realize that, and when your heart understands that, because we go back to worship a matter of the heart, when our heart realizes the faithfulness that God has for us, and the patience he has with us, the response is worship. Whether it be through singing songs, or acknowledging with our heart, reading the word, worship goes back to that. Because he's patient, and we don't deserve it. And we've talked before that it's God's grace that draws us to Him. It's God's grace that makes us want to go back to Him. And that's what we do in our lives. If you have someone that shows grace to you, you want to go to them. You want to be with them. You want to work harder for them. And that's the same thing that happens to us. We obey God because we see His grace. We see that He's ready to forgive. When we realize His faithfulness, and we see just as they do, when we proclaim this, when through prayer we say that you're ready to forgive, you're gracious and you're merciful. It leads to worship. There's no other response unless you don't truly understand that. But if we truly see that He's graceful, gracious to us, that He's merciful, He's slow to anger. Slow to anger steps out in my mind easy because I'm not good at that. I get angry too fast. It's where I fell as a father. Often I get too frustrated. No, He's slow to anger. He's slow to anger because He's abounding in steadfast love. And that's what leads us to true worship. Because we see who he is. We experience his power. We realize his faithfulness in that. And that leads us to a life of true worship. In everything that we do. That's why we can worship while we're working. Because we realize who he is doesn't change when we leave this room. When this room goes back to being a cafeteria tomorrow morning. And there's 200 kids watching a movie for breakfast. He's still ready to forgive. Gracious, merciful, slow to anger. That's why we can live a life of worship. That's what a true life of worship is. It's not just when Ryan and worship leaders play songs. That's part of it. We want to proclaim those truths. We also want to know it in our hearts. And that's when we realize his faithfulness and his patience are accompanied with his all-powerful nature that it leads us to worship. It leads us to worship. But then what we need to understand is how can we do that? How can we continually make our minds go there? That's good in theory, but how does it actually work? What, how does it apply to our lives? And what we see there is that's why we've got to go back to the first of this story because we see that it's fueled by confession and repentance. That true worship, when we acknowledge who God is, we see His power, and we experience and realize His faithfulness, His gracious nature He's slow to anger, We see that, and then it leads us to confession and repentance. And that's what we see. We see who we truly are. We can't help but see God's power and see that we're powerless. just can't do it. We can't help but see that he's gracious and realize that we really aren't very gracious. That we have expectations for others that that we don't have for ourselves. And so you go back to the first. Look at at those first, first four verses, first three verses really just verse three. Second part of two, it says, themselves and all, they removed themselves from the foreigners. Verse two, Israelites separate themselves from the foreigners. What we need to understand there is, is while they're building the wall, it wasn't just the Israelites that lived in Jerusalem. There's other people involved. They weren't just this random people that they're, they're going to build a wall. No, there's others in there. So they separate themselves from the foreigners. Remember, they're not, they're not sovereign in this land. That's the Persians, that's Artaxerxes. There's other people here. So they separated themselves from the foreigners and they stood and confessed their sins and the iniquity of their fathers. What we see there, and you see this through the Old Testament, it always goes back to the sins of their fathers. It's because all the covenant people were still involved in their sin. There was a connection there. It's the same thing with us. That's why we say that Adam is, is our federal head. that His sin passed to us. And so when we confess sin, we're acknowledging that throughout human history, throughout this time of redemption, that we've always continually been drawn into sin. So we confess that. We confess sin. And then verse 3 says, They stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of their God. They go to Scripture for a quarter of the day. There it is again. Hours and hours of just reading the parts of the Bible that we don't read. Just soaking... Their minds saturating their hearts in Scripture, and then what? For another quarter, they did what? They made confession and worshipped their Lord. And what we see there is, is, is interesting. Notice that they didn't worship and then confess. And sometimes we switch that. Sometimes we switch that, and we want to worship and experience who God. We're these great songs that Jesus is better, and then we want to confess. But if we don't confess first, if we don't acknowledge who we are first, we can't say that Jesus is better because we're still caught up in ourselves. It's got to be confession fueling our worship. And that's what we see. Repentance then is the lifestyle that confession leads to. Verse 2, we see something interesting. We talked about it just a second. that, that They separated themselves. This confession, this isn't just go out and random I read a book one time about someone on a college campus. They just set up this confession booth. You can go confess. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about true confession. Not just just act, let's just say we're going to confess our sins. No, this is a true, heartfelt understanding of who we are in relationship to who God is. We're going to confess that. We're going to understand that, that that He is greater than we are. It's this idea of confession, and we can't do that amongst non-believers because they don't understand that. It doesn't mean that we exclude them, but there's times where we need to confess alone before God because then it's true. Then it's not putting on a show for others. Then it's not acting like we're better people or we've got this figured out. If you can't confess when it's just you and God, then you really aren't confessing because it's just an external thing. This is a heart issue. And we see again in verse 3 that confession leads to worship. We can't forget that idea that confession leads to worship. They made confession and worshipped the Lord their God. They worshipped because of their confession, because it's an acknowledgement of who we are and who he is. But one thing that we can't forget about this, and it's what we talked about last week, that we need to be people of the word, that it was the word that led to this. We can't lose the connection between chapter 8 and the book of the law being read and the confession that happens after. We see this amazing point of revival in chapter 8. They're reading the book of the law. They stand up for hours, and they're confessing and mourning. They say, no, the joy of the Lord is your strength. Don't, don't mourn now, but then what happens later? It leads to confession. Why? Because the word exposes that. The truth exposes that. That's why when, when Ryan prays that, that it's going to be sharper than any two-edged sword, because it pierces our hearts and it leads us to see who we really are in light of who God is, and that leads us to confessing. We truly understand that, but it has to come from the Word. It doesn't come from anywhere else. It doesn't come from listening to a podcast or or reading books. It comes from getting into the truth of God just simply because it's His Word. And so when we open His Word, that shows us who He is. And that leads to confession, which leads to repentance, which leads to a lifestyle of true worship. Because we have Him placed where He's supposed to be. There's a, one of the first Bible studies we did as a core group here at Watershed was the Gospel-Centered Life, and in that there's this, there's a chart. Bob Thune is a pastor in um, Omaha, I believe, and he wrote this, and he's got in there, it's called the Cross Chart, and on the top end going up it says our realization of our sin, or his righteousness, and on the bottom it has a line going away that says our realization of our sin. And so what happens then is what bridges that. We see God's righteousness and we see our sinfulness and the bridge between that is the cross. And so if we're living our lives on the path that we should and we're understanding who we are and we're understanding who God is, when we see his righteousness and it's increasing, as we get into the truth more, we understand more about who he is, the spirits in our lives sanctifying us, growing us closer to him, we have a better understanding of who he is and as a result we have a better understanding an increasing knowledge of who we are as sinners. And the bridge between that's the cross. And so as our life progresses, as we get older and our life has lived more in that, then the cross in between gets bigger because we realize the gap between his righteousness and our sin. And so what we see in that is the the gospel is the bridge there. The cross is what does that. But what you see in that getting bigger and bigger is our worship should be increasing all the more too then our life is true worship because that's who we see who we are. We see His righteousness. We see our sin. And yet, He sent His Son. And that leads us to worship. But we don't get that apart from hearing the Word of God. Going to it, not just to get something out of it, but to see who He is. That's Paul's prayer in Ephesians, that He would, that, that he would make Himself known to the Ephesians better and in deeper and that's when we get to the gospel. That's why the gospel is such good news, because it's bad news before it's good news, and that means that it's really good news. I know that's kind of twisted. But it's bad news because it says you're dead in your trespasses and sin. We have to acknowledge that we're sinners first, because if we're not sinners, then we don't need him. So we acknowledge that we're sinners first. The gospel says you're dead in your trespasses and sin, but made alive in Christ Jesus. And so the gospel is bad news, then it's good news that means the entire thing of it is good because it shows us the way out of that the gospel shows us that turn to john first john real quick almost at the end if you get to revelations take a left In 1 John, we see it. there's an interesting couple of verses. I just wanted to look at it because it's talking about the exact same thing that we're talking about now. The word of truth showing us who we really are and as a result, worship. In 1 John 1, ver- we'll start in verse 8. Or verse 7. Verse 7 will give us better. In, in, in 1 John one sentence says, but if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with the one with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sins. So if we walk in the light, the blood of Jesus has cleansed us. And then in verse 8, this is what, we, the next three verses, is what we need to, to really focus on. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and the word is not in us. The reason I wanted you to look at that is because we have sandwiched in between this confess our sins, he's faithful to forgive us, is two ways where it says that if the truth, if you say you're not with sin, then the truth's not in you. And what that means is that if we are in the word and we feel that we're not a sinner, then we're not really in the word. That it really hasn't impacted our life. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth's not in us. Because when we go to Scripture, we see who we truly are. Because we see who He truly is. And that leads us to worship. Why? Because if we confess our sins, there it is again, He's faithful. We realize His faithfulness and that leads us to worship. Because we know that confession is not a negative thing, it's a positive thing. Because it's a rightful understanding of who we are as sinners. Because the truth tells us that, but the truth also says that we're made alive in Christ. That leads us to a life of worship. But what that also does is it leads us and creates in us a humility that can't be found anywhere else. That, that if we're going to truly worship, it's going to be remembering and proclaiming the glory of God. And to do that, we have to be humble because it lowers us to where we truly are. So it's, incapa- it's impossible of truly worshiping and living a life of worship if we're not humble before the Lord. Because if we're not humble before the Lord, we don't really know who we are. Because there's no way that we can stand up for him. No way we can stand up to him and say anything. Our response that we would get would be just like Job got. Where were you when this happened? Who are you to answer or to question me? It humbles us, but that humility leads us to worship because we see that we should get nothing. Yet he sent his son for us. Not only did we get life, but we got life because he sent the most prized thing. He had his son to die for us. That's why we worship. That's why in a second we celebrate communion. That's why it's such an amazing thing because it's a celebration of the gift that we got that we didn't deserve. And so we can't approach the table. We can't approach communion without humility. We have to understand that, that this is his body broken for us. And when we realize that we live a life of true worship when we realize that we see that our life can be lived to worship by acknowledging who we really are and who he really is because then that points us to Christ that's why the gospel is everything that's why we want to be gospel centered not just because it's a, a catchphrase these days and it's cliche to say we'd be gospel centered no it's because the gospel is the center of everything we had because it says we're dead in our trespasses yet made alive in Christ. And that's why we worship. So if we're going to truly live a life of worship, we're going to be humble people because we've experienced God's power. But when we experience God's power, we realize His faithfulness and patience to us. And that then leads us to live a life of worship because we realize the situation we're in, we don't deserve. Yet, He sent His Son. Let's pray.